Hi everybody, this is Gino Vanelli. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the persons appearing on the program. What follows is a rebroadcast of my Deep Sniff episode, which originally aired week of October 5th, 2021. An episode where I featured British author Adam Smith, who talks about his latest book, Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Well, recently, this episode received an honorable mention at the 2022 NCRA Awards, the National Campus and Community Radio Association Awards, in the category of Out Loud, Best in LGBT Plus Programming. Without further ado, here is Deep Sniff. Hi, this is Emily Saliers from Indigo Girls. Hey everyone, this is Chris Harder, porn star, burlesque performer, and the creator of Porn to Be a Star. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. Well, hello and welcome to a brand new journey through Rainbow Country. As I like to call it, a little gay radio show working to give voice to the LGBT community and beyond. And as always, I am your tour guide through Rainbow Country. I'm producer and host, Mark Tara. By the way, did you know that Rainbow Country originates from CIUT-FM in Toronto? The sound of your city. And now proudly in syndication across Canada on 10 outlets. So, from the Yukon, to the Prairies, to the east coast of Canada in the Maritimes, to Ontario, even down to Buffalo, New York, and online. Thanks to you, tuning in, streaming, downloading, but ultimately, listening. Together, we continue to build Rainbow Country into a syndicated gay radio show, a number one LGBT podcast, and a top 100 LGBT podcast to follow. So today, author Adam Smith joins us to talk about his new book, Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures, a book that reveals the long history of the quick rush of sniffing poppers. We'll find out about the history of poppers, why he chose to write this book, as well as two readings from the author himself. Plus, music from LGBT artists, independent artists, voices that we've come to know and love in classic disco, classic 80s, classic house. And on this episode, I'm featuring some Canadian disco, 80s, plus a three-song new music set, and so much more. But up first... Rainbow Country contributor, professor, and activist, Dr. Jeff, talks about author Carter Sickles' LGBT novel, The Prettiest Star, a story about a young man dying of AIDS who returns to his Ohio hometown where people think homosexuality is a sin and the disease a divine punishment. 
Did you know that every time someone says Stonewall was the beginning of the LGBTQ rights movement, a queer historian's head explodes? Well, mine does, at least. When we reduce queer history to one event, we inevitably exclude other voices and perspectives, namely those of queer people who live outside of large cosmopolitan cities. Queer people, of course, are everywhere. We live in smaller cities, towns, and rural communities, too. We need holistic narratives of queer experience that balance the importance of events like Stonewall with the lives and work of queer people across the United States and beyond. One such narrative is Carter Sickles' recent novel, The Prettiest Star, published by Hub City Press. Set during the summer of 1986, Brian, a gay man with AIDS, returns from New York City to his childhood home of Chester, Ohio, located in the foothills of the Appalachians. Brian's final summer is chronicled through three alternating perspectives, his own video diaries, his mother Sharon, and his 14-year-old sister Jess. The title and each section of the novel are named after songs by David Bowie, whose music formed the backdrop to Brian's adolescence and helped him to make sense of his difference as a queer person in a small town. The Prettiest Star is a decidedly different narrative of queerness than what we're accustomed to. We typically see queer characters leaving small, oppressive places for big cities, never to return. We assume that queer people who live in rural communities can never be self-actualized or proud. But The Prettiest Star turns this narrative on its head. Sickles was inspired in part by the story of Mike Sisko, a gay man with AIDS from Williamson, West Virginia, who made headlines during the summer of 1987 when he went for a swim in the local public pool. He was shunned by Williamson residents and the pool closed due to panic, rumors, and false beliefs that HIV could be transmitted through casual contact. Sisko eventually appeared on an episode of the Oprah Winfrey show to tell his story. I was dying and I thought they could overlook the fact that I am a homosexual and see that I needed some compassion and to be in my hometown, he told Winfrey. I felt anger at first because I couldn't understand why. Brian faces a similar reception in Chester and like Sisko, he never apologizes for who he is. Why does Brian return to the place of his becoming? What is home? Why do we go there? And what do we expect to find? Why do we come back to places we thought we left behind? As Brian tells us, to understand who you've become, to reconcile, to say goodbye. I'm Jeff Yovanone for Rainbow Country, and you can find me and more of my work via my Linktree profile uh, at Dr. Jeff Gender Prof. Hi, my name is Joanne Vanicola, and I'm an actor and a writer. And I was first on Rainbow Country with Mark Tara on discussing the massacre at Pulse Club in in Orlando. Um, I realized how important it was for our community to have a radio station uh, specifically for our issues to, to talk about people in, in the LGBTQ community and to provide a, an outlet for our stories, um, to discuss uh, our politics, culture, and give voice to the, to the issues that matter to us. And of course, our artists and, and um, 
the things that we do globally and, and talk about culture. And without people like Mark Tara uh, providing a space for this with, with a radio show like this, then uh, we wouldn't have that voice. So support. Tune in. Thank you. Hi, I'm Saida Garrett, co-writer of Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mr. Mark Tara. Inhale deep, because coming up next, the author of Deep Sniff, a history of poppers and queer futures, Adam Smith, kicks off our interview with a reading, taking us back to the 1800s when Dr. Thomas Lauder Brunton makes a correlation between sniffing what we would come to know as poppers and its effect on a painful heart condition known as angina. Is it Adam with a, a Z or is it Liza with an S? <laughs> it's a it's a Z. It's my it's the word I it's the name I use as my professional name. So you just say it like it looks, like Smith. Smith. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering say, because, because, because sometimes I see S, sometimes I see Z. Yeah, I'm like, is this girl like doing a Liza Minnelli thing here? <laughs> well, obviously my name is Smith, but um that's useless. So, uh, especially on Google. So I just use the Z and it's kind of nice and fun. You want to stand out. Yeah, you got it. I, I hear you. When I was just a lad, I learned that anal sex was bad. The church said it was a dirty, rotten sin. But then I learned from other guys that no matter what the size there's a simple trick to help you take that tick. Just a quick sniff. The puppets have some penis slide right in. The penis slides right in. You can take it with a grin. Just a quick sniff. The puppets have the penis slide right in. In the most delightful way. In the winter of 1866, actually, while a medical student in Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, Brunton met a patient called William H. This young man was only 26, but already had trained as a blacksmith and then switched to toll keeper. His first job may have required too much exertion for him to continue because Brunton's notes reveal that William suffered from heart trouble. When Brunton met him, William had recently been hit by a dull, heavy pain about the left nipple every three days or so, lasting for at least half an hour. The pain had come on after years of infrequent attacks ever since he'd suffered from rheumatism as a child. After a three-week hospital stay earlier in the spring, William was back just before Christmas. Doctors gave him aconite, which slows the heart rate, and digitalis. When neither worked, Brunton gave him brandy. The strong stuff didn't help either, so there was only one thing for it. The experiment was not a stab in the dark. Brunton acted in a way that was consistent with his wishes to take basic research from the lab to the bedside and only with a decent understanding of the actual effect in the body. He had read the work of another scientist, Richardson, that amyl nitrite dilated blood vessels 
and had even discussed the effect with his colleague in Edinburgh, Arthur Gamgee, who had made some unpublished measurements of this effect. Brunton obtained some amyl nitrite from Gamgee, who made it for him, and consent for an experiment from his supervising physician. And this is how Brunton came to give his patient William amyl nitrite. On March the 12th, 1867, Brunton observed, The pain came on as usual at 3am. A few drops of nitrite of amyl were put on a towel and inhaled by the patient. The primary effect noticed was a suffusion of the face, and the patient felt a glow over his face and chest. The pain disappeared almost simultaneously with the occurrence of these phenomena, but returned in three minutes. He then inhaled five drops more. The pain again disappeared and did not return. Adam Smith, hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you, Mark, for having me on the show. You are more than welcome. Thank you for being here to have your voice, your story be heard by the LGBT community and beyond. Especially when it comes to your new book, Yes, Deep Sniff. A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Yes. Okay, let's just jump right in and inhale the vapors that you are offering with this book. Talk to me about what this book is all about. Well, this the book is about poppers, and that is a the, the sort of street name for a collection of substances. I'm sure lots of your listeners will know um, about it, but some might not. Um, it's a collection of different chemical substances that are um, manufactured and, and sold. And um, basically, it's like a drug, you sniff the vapor, and it has an effect on your body, which um, usually brings people pleasure and uh, helps them when they're having sex. And it's got a really, really long history, which is really fascinating and has not been written about before. So I decided to look into that. And tell that history. Right. So, um, so does it go back to what, the 1800s or something? Right. Yeah, the substance, um, the first substance uh, was called amyl nitrite, and it was first synthesized in 1844 by a French chemist who was just the kind of scientist that was just like making stuff and trying stuff out, you know. Um, there was a lot of basic research that was being done at that point in um, in big places like London and Paris and uh, big places for science. And so he synthesized this substance um, and it smelled pretty strong and it made him blush when he sniffed it and he could not imagine a use for it. His name was Antoine Jerome Ballard and um, Ballard just could not imagine um, why anyone would um, need the substance. It just made him, it just made him blush. Um, and, uh, because, and now we know that's because it dilates the blood vessels and it gives a head rush and it pushes blood around the body a bit more easily. So, a lot of that blood would come to your face and that's why you would blush. And so um, he didn't really do much more with it, to be honest. And a couple of other scientists at the time uh, tried experimenting with it in different ways. They, they gave it to all sorts of poor animals, unfortunately. <laughs> they put rabbits in boxes and pumped amyl nitrite vapour into the air and saw oh what rabbits <laughs> and stuff like that. So those poor animals. Um, and... And, and around that time, by now, about in the 1860s, there was a doctor called Thomas Lauder Brunton, and he was working uh, in a hospital in Edinburgh, in Scotland. And he had done his, uh, one of his thesis on um, how to uh, relieve the pain and suffering of people with angina, 
which is when not enough blood is getting to your heart. So your heart really, really hurts. And um, there was one substance that was being used at the time, digitalis. It's a plant. And, uh, and it, it, you know, with mixed success, it did, it did work a little bit. But Brunton wanted to um, take something more from basic research. He was looking around for another substance to try. And he found, uh, he read about amyl nitrite because some of these experimental scientists had seen that it dilated blood vessels in the webbed feet of frogs. And so he knew that that might be, Brunton knew, that might be the thing that would relieve the suffering of his angina patients if he could dilate the blood vessels, meaning more blood would flow to the heart. So he tried that out on a patient and it worked. And then (laughs) the history goes on and on from then, but it became a substance that finally had a use and it became a medical use. And it was a medical use for decades Uh, specifically for angina, but also it was noted in other um, publications, scientific and medical publications, as having other uses and relieving problems such as seasickness and even period pain as well. Mm. And so... Um, and with the medical, the medical aspect, is that where the name comes from? Because they were in glass vials? Yeah. And they would pop it? Yeah, so to when release it? Yeah, so when amyl nitrite was was manufactured for this medical purpose and and uh, given to patients under prescription, um it obviously because the active thing is the vapor, that's the thing that you want, but it comes in a liquid and at room temperature that liquid is producing vapor, the vapor is lifting off it. So you have to find a way of manufacturing it and distributing this vapor where it's obviously contained until the moment when the patient needs the vapor and when they open the thing that the liquid is in um, because you don't want it wafting around all over the place. So, yeah, so they used to make these little glass ampules, um, which are tiny, like, um, yeah, little little glass vials, which were sealed. And the glass was pretty fragile and thin. And um, the amyl nitrite was inside and you would just crush it in your hand and it would make a pop sound because of the pressure of the air. And then you would be able to inhale the vapor. So that's where the name poppers come from, which is funny. And it's lasted because now they're not poppers is not like distributed in that way. You know, mm. you get them in little bottles sold in sex shops in the US and the UK, at least. Mm-hmm. So why did you want to tell the story? Why did you want to reveal this history? Why was this important for you? It was important for me to tell this history of poppers because I like poppers. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I found that when I spoke to people about it, um, you know, people in my, in my friendship circles, I guess, mm. in my um, people that I had sex with, and also in um, queer history circles, which I'm also sort of in because of some other work that I do, uh, I just found that not that many people knew very much about them. It was... You know, poppers are like fairly ubiquitous among men having sex with men and, and uh, you know, broadly queer subcultures. And yet um, people just don't really think about them that much and they don't know very much about them. And, and that's not necessarily bad, but that to me was just a, a call to action as a writer. You know, I was like, oh, well, there's probably something in this and I just want to look into it and find out a bit more about this history. And that also set me on a path of thinking a bit more about how poppers had become a part of, you know, gay culture specifically in the seventies really. And then other decades as well. And how it had become a part of LGBT community 
queer culture, queer subculture broadly, um, because that was something that interested me that this was a really quite popular drug. Um, and yeah, not a lot of people know about it, as I said, but also uh, it's managed to evade like public, I don't know, like interest or scrutiny. It, it's like, you know, most people probably don't take cocaine, but everyone knows what cocaine is and everyone has seen cocaine in like films and yes. and, and songs and everything. We all know what cocaine is, but, but, you know, even if you don't take it or have never even seen it and yet poppers were not in that same category. And that was interesting to me that mm-hmm. it was a popular drug, but no one really knows that much about it. So there was an article on BuzzFeed called this man does not make poppers about American <laughs> businessman right. Everett Farr, who's been right. bottling liquids for over three decades. Right. You were featured in that article. How did you become part of that article? The writer of the article, David Mack, just contacted me and said, I'm researching poppers and you seem to know about it. So can we talk, you know? Um, and and how, and yeah. had you, because your, your, your book is new on the market. Right. And how did he know that about you, that you. I guess he just. Well, know about guess, poppers. Yeah, I guess. Um, thanks to the wonders of like the combination of um, advanced publicity for the book mm-hmm. uh, you know, my publishers have obviously been contacting journalists and podcast people and um, posting about it on social media and stuff like that. Um, so a combination of that and Google uh, managing magically to serve the, the right content to the right person when they need it. <laughs> so I guess it maybe Googled history poppers or something like that. And, and I came up because I've been I've been posting a lot about it or the publishers have. Um yeah and it was a really it's a really it's a really fun article but it's also really interesting and it's really unique because there's a lot of articles online that are about the history of poppers and they all basically have the same uh five or six facts in them and they're all quite superficial because you know what online publishing is like you know people just have to write something really quick and chuck it up on a website and then move on to the next thing and David actually did a, a, a really quite unique thing of managing to visit a popper's factory and interview the person who's been running it for decades, like you said. And that was really quite a surprise because the manufacturers are pretty secretive about what they do because there's this strange legal uh, situation that they're in really in the US and the UK and Canada is a whole other story, which we can talk about as well because it's become a political issue, right? Um, in the election. So uh, yeah, so he, he really did this quite amazing thing of, of managing to get this guy on the record. And mm-hmm. uh, I have to say, it was a really interesting story. And he sounds like a really interesting character. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Deep Sniff ad- addresses issues like identity, sex, capitalism, law. How challenging was it for you to research this book and put this book together yeah um it was it was quite challenging not least because I wrote most of it last year when we were under various states of lockdown here in the UK where I live I live in London and um so I would have and also I didn't have (laughs) much money and um so uh I and I was so I was working on other things I didn't have much money 
um, uh, to me to write the book, you know, as, as an advance. So even if I'd had, even if it hadn't been a pandemic, um, and if I had had more money, then maybe I could have traveled to some more archives and locations, uh, but I couldn't. Um, and so I had to think creatively and there's quite a lot of stuff online that you can find and you can contact archives and say, and obviously last year, everyone was super understanding that you couldn't travel and stuff. So I did manage to contact some people and, you know, get, get some stuff. Um, but prior to the pandemic, I had actually done quite a bit of research into the, the notes of Thomas Lauder Brunton, the doctor who I mentioned, uh, because his medical notes and papers are kept in the Welcome uh, um, Library, which is in London, um, which is this huge archive of medical history. And um, way before the pandemic, I had actually gone and looked at those and uh, made lots of notes about those. So fortunately, I had some of that really core, important stuff. Um, and other than that, yeah, a lot of online research and like finding papers, academic papers or old medical publications which are, which require like quite a bit of like online, you know, um, sleuthing and trying to uh, figure out what to do about academic paywalls, which are evil and they stop people sharing knowledge. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was that. But then I think the other thing as I was writing it was that um, it became much more about the culture, as I said earlier, I think, culture around poppers and, and that the relationship of poppers in gay subculture and queer subculture and so then and, and a lot of those things are quite you know they're, they're they're fairly well documented in lots of ways now thank god because queer history is something that more and more people are doing and more and more people are publishing around it so that's really important um and then it also became a bit about my own thoughts and my own ideas on identity and queerness and that's kind of about the queer futures thing that's in the subtitle um and so actually you know it was a bit of an excuse for me to to do research in quotes which was research into myself and research into my views on on identity and queerness mm -hmm. and that meant that I therefore um you know thought quite a lot and read quite a lot about um of science fiction and music that I liked and thought about how all these things were important and how they connected to the story even if they ostensibly didn't you know mm -hmm. And what's the story behind the name Deep Sniff? Well, history of poppers and yeah. queer futures. Yeah, well, Deep Sniff um, was just one title. Is it like of Deep one... Throat? I guess it's like <laughs> Deep Throat, yeah. And um, actually, I wanted to call it Aromatherapy with, a Z, with an X in the middle, um, Aromatherapy. But the sales reps said that that wasn't going to work because you have to, you know, because an invented word like that, you have to explain all the time to book distributors and booksellers. So I understand that. That was the original title. And then, um, yeah, Deep Sniff just seemed to like pop, you know, when I suggested it to some people. And then uh, the subtitle, I really wanted to make it a history of poppers and queer futures and not the history of poppers because mm. that's my approach to history in other, other work that I do is, um, especially queer history is, first of all, there's so much queer history that we don't know and we will never know because people's personal papers and photographs and things are destroyed or were destroyed because, you know, for safety, um, queer history has often been censored, uh, self-censored um, or censored by institutions or family members. 
And so we'll never really know anything. And also, I just don't really believe in this idea of definitive history. You know, if you want like the the 100 things that have happened on a timeline about poppers, then um, you might be disappointed if you buy Deep Sniff. You still should, obviously. <laughs> but um, but it's a history. You know, it's like here is here's a bunch of facts that I've assembled into something which is like a collection of ideas as well as a chronological set of um, information, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's a, a more human way of actually approaching history. And I think it's so true when it comes to queer history, because we often fall in between things in history. We fall uh, between different institutions. Our, the, the, our effects that we, that we make, our cultural products often fall between genres. We slide through different forms of artistic expression and all sorts of things like that. So I just don't think anything's definitive, especially not when we're talking about queerness, which is like, you know, bodies and identity and gender and sexuality. And all of these things I think are really, really hard to define. So that's the long explanation for the title, um, well, Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures is very much about, um, because Future became a part of the the, the book because I realised that, or I, or I felt like when you sniff poppers, you sort of, because you lose your inhibitions and it's only very quick, you know, the effect only lasts for about, I don't know, between 45 seconds and 90 seconds or something. You lose your inhibitions and you're sort of projecting yourself into this like better future version of yourself because, you know, where things are pleasurable and the bad things fall away. And that's kind of where we're all, like aiming for all the time um, in how we want to live. And that's one of the reasons why we all have utopian ideas or we all have dreams and we all want to be freer. So that, that queer futures became a part of the book as well. So in 2013, poppers were officially banned in Canada. Here's, here's my question, Adam. Why have poppers been so vilified, so targeted? Why do you think so? Because it's it's banned here in, in Canada and in other countries. Why? Well, I wish I knew what happened in Canada in 2013, you know, because there was not a ban and then there was a ban. So I kind of, I'd be interested to know that. But um, because, as you said, why? You know, because, well, I think, okay, there are a couple of things. Um, Is it because it's a gay thing? Well, I think that some people think that, and I can see that there is some argument behind that. So if you take, if we take that one first, is it because it's a gay thing? I think that there is a misunderstanding of what it is. And that's because it's not only a gay thing, but it's a sex thing. And gay plus sex is often quite alarming to people and they don't understand it. And they feel like it's um, something not necessarily, you know, um, for some people, it's obviously it's something that they don't want to think about, and they don't they they don't like the fact that it exists. But for but for, for but for the majority of people, um, certainly in places like Canada and the UK where I live, it, you know, gay plus sex, those two things combined, is just not something that they know very much about or or want really to think about. And so I think that it you know poppers in within that category of of gay sex is is just something that there's a lot of ignorance about. And that would obviously be also on the part of regulators, you know, like Health Canada. And so, um, so I think that, I think that, I don't think that there's 
you know, a, a prohibition on poppers where there is a prohibition purely because it's a gay thing and people are trying to stop gay people enjoying their bodies. There might be some of that motivating, like unconsciously, some of the people um, who have the power to do that. But I just, I don't see any evidence of that, put it that way. I just think it's probably ignorance, you know, and misunderstandings. And then the second thing is to do with drugs policy generally, which is very usually unable, certainly in the UK and the US, definitely. I'm less familiar with Canada, but I suspect it's the same. Drugs policy is unable to properly handle relative harms uh, and um, and therefore leads to, uh, well, relative harms and social views and values. And so, you know, if we wanted to create a sliding scale of drugs and substances that do the most harm to society and to individuals, and we wanted to ban the top 10 or the top 20, poppers would not be anywhere near that. Alcohol would be and cigarettes would be. And yet those are freely available, you know. So um, so drugs policy, because of the combination of like, you know, unable to think about relative harms and the social values that we have like there's no way that you could ban alcohol in a country like Canada or the UK you know so um so I I think that because it would just be unpopular is what I mean so I yeah I think that the the sort of the 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 way that drugs policy just doesn't actually make sense when you look at it on paper is the other is the other thing and poppers unfortunately in some places have fallen between that crack whereas in the UK and the US they are in the cr- in the crack, <laughs> sorry, but but they but they're allowed. Mm-hmm. So um, the crack is allowed. The crack is allowed, <laughs> but they are like, but they're, they're but they're they're allowed in this really stra- quite strange no person's land of the regulators saying, okay, we'll allow you to make this substance and we'll allow you to sniff this substance, but you can't say on the label what the substance is. And you can't say how to use it safely. So which is quite a bizarre situation because it's not often that you get a product where the government basically tells manufacturers, you cannot print on the label how to use this product safely. Can you imagine if that was the case for the bleach under your kitchen sink or something? If the manufacturers were banned from actually saying, here's the safety guidance for this. You know, they can't print that on Popper's labels in the UK and the US because there's because they're trying to turn a blind eye to it. So those are some of my thoughts on that question, Mark. Um, it is quite bizarre and it doesn't make any sense, but I think that's the point. I met this guy once in a bar who took me outside to his car. He spread my cheeks and tried to ram it in. I screamed, no, it's too big. He said, take it all, you pig. Then he shoved this small brown bottle up my nose. And girl, I gotta tell you something. That quick sniff of puppers Let the penis slide right in The penis slide right in Now I can take it with a grin Just a quick sniff of puppers Let the penis slide right in In the most delightful way And on that stimulating note We will return after this Rainbow Country update Hi, I'm comic artist and author Phil Jimenez, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara.
award-winning LGBT documentary, Cured, opens the fall season of PBS's Independent Lens on October the 11th. Cured shines a light on pioneering LGBTQ plus activists who fought to remove homosexuality from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in 1973. Catch this powerful new documentary on PBS's Independent Lens, October the 11th. By the way, PBS will be streaming Cured on their app for a full month after its broadcast premiere. Hi, I'm singer-songwriter Steve Grand. You're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Tara. September 20th, there was uh, the election, national election here in Canada. Poppers even became a talking point for the conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole. Uh, Chris Reynolds, Canadian Press. Conservative Calgary MP Michelle Rumpel-Garner has asked the federal health minister to look at the, the benefits or harms of poppers. This is a drug primarily used by men who have sex with men with the possible outcome of establishing safe supply. Uh, She says the widespread use of poppers or alkyl nitrates hasn't received adequate study, partly because of the stigmatization of LGBTQ plus healthcare. So is the use of these drugs, which serve to relax muscles but have been pushed into the gray market, something your government would be open to? Well, as you know, uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner has been our lead on, on health issues throughout this pandemic. We've been holding the government to account on slow pace on approval of rapid tests on vaccines. And I want members of the LGBTQ community to know if they want something looked at, if they're advocating for an issue, as Michelle has, as I have, as uh, other members of our caucus have, we want to make sure that a federal government is responsive to the needs of all Canadians in all communities. It's also why we've been holding Mr. Trudeau to account for his broken promise now over five years to gay men with respect to the unfair, the discriminatory blood ban. So we will advocate, including asking for Health Canada, to to examine issues of concern to the LGBTQ community. So you were just talking about, did you find that there was a weird pact between governments and manufacturers like you were just talking about that were saying you can't say what how to use poppers but you can say you know it's it's vh uh cleaner yeah. or it's yeah. it's boot cleaner yeah that yeah exactly so That's so exactly. why why is there that sort of you know look look the other way kind of thing but yet it's it's banned in other places <laughs> right i think it's Obviously, every every country is 
it's sovereign and it's culturally very different. You know, even the US and Canada or the UK and Canada, very different cult- culturally, um, even though we think that they're quite close together. Um, in, in all three of those countries, there is, um, you know, they're all um, small L liberal countries, classically liberal countries where the freedom of the individual um, is the most uh, is is one of the most precious mm. values, and that is a fundamental of of the political systems in all three countries. Um, and I think that that um, that freedom of the individual is something that is super relevant in in any drugs policy, because you know because the the default position is to allow the individual to make their own choices, to make to have informed consent, and to make informed choices about what they do with their body. Um, obviously, there are laws that stop people doing certain things with their bodies. Um, and uh, assisted dying is another one where the UK and Canada are very different on this point. And Canada is, um, in my opinion, way ahead of the UK on that point in terms of allowing people, you know, to, to do, to do that with their body. Um, and so, uh, yeah. So I think that that focus on the, on the individual f- freedom is something that when it comes to poppers, the harms are so low, the, re- the relative harms, they are so low. Um, there are a couple of people every year, certainly in the US, I'm not sure in Canada or in the UK, who die from drinking poppers, which is not the way to use it. Like really a couple of people. And there are some people that drink it and have like a, a very difficult time, um, but they get better. Um, there are some people that get headaches, but they go away. Some people that have had eye problems, but they go away. And these are in in you know these are small numbers compared to the numbers of people that are doing poppers and have done poppers for decades and decades and decades you know if this was a really harmful substance we would know it by now you know um so i think that in the us and the uk there's that weird turning a blind eye thing because the state really knows that these don't do any harm it knows that if it banned them that there would be a lot of controversy and and they would look quite stupid because it would become quite clear that there are not really any serious harms relatively speaking and so they just say well we don't want to make a big fuss of this we don't want to regulate this product that much um or at all really so we'll just let you do it that's kind of the position in the UK and the US and Canada banned in 2013 like you said and it became an issue in the election again this year um, and I think that that's probably because Canada's out of step with these other liberal places, the UK and the US. So y- you are part of the LGBT community. Adam. I am. I'm a happy, proud, queer man. <laughs> you, ca- you call yourself queer? For yourself- I do. I, I sometimes say gay, I sometimes say queer. So for yourself, what is the difference between queer and gay? It's sometimes, you know, it depends on who I'm talking to. Um, so I find that like to non-LGBTQ plus people, I, I might say gay, or at least that's how they would understand me because I am a man, a cisgendered man, and I have um, sex with men. And um, But to often members of the LGBTQ plus community, I might say queer because I feel that they're more understanding of, of what that is. And to me, what queer means is it's a commitment to a radical view of 
the potential of our bodies. And that includes our identities and our sexualities and our, and our genders. So for me, queer is a more fluid sense of identity um, and a more empowering sense of identity because it's, it's, the, it's the label that shuns all of the labels in a way, including the half of myself that calls myself gay, you know. Um, and so it's this fluid thing on the one hand, but also it's this very, very practical spiky thing on the other hand which um, has, in my opinion, very clear political um, and radical views on things like, uh, you know, on all sorts of um, things to do with human potential, including things like borders and um, economy and things which you don't necessarily think about uh, being connected to this stuff. But um, but for me, it's yeah, it's a, it's a commitment to, to, to a radical politics. Do you see... Maybe you just answered my next question, but do you see gay as being your sexuality and queer being your politics, the way that you see your political stance in the world? Um, I think you could summarize it in that way, but I also think that there's something lost, something that I lose. I mean, I'm only talking about myself when I say that my sexuality is gay and and let me explain what I mean when I say lose, because overall I gain so much and I have gained so much by recognizing what my sexuality is and performing it and enjoying it and, and bringing that pleasure to my life. And that came, you know, um, quite, it took, a, it took a long time for me to get there. I was 29 before I had sex and before I came out. And so um, and I'm 36 now. So I think that on the one hand, I've gained a lot by using that label and that category and, and helps, it's helped me to find other people like me or go to certain um, events or venues like, you know, where I know that I'll read certain books, whatever, that, that speak to me in that side of my identity. So I gain so much, like it's a flood. But on the other hand, I think there is something that I lose when I say that word gay, because I think it, it tends to put me as a, um, it tends to assume that I'm, you know, a cisgendered man who wants to sleep with other cisgendered men um, or men in a broader category. And, and I feel like there's a closing down there. Like I, you know, that's, that's all fine. That's a nice thing to do, but I feel like, well, you know, I want to leave lots of things open. And also in terms of like the gender expression of some of the people that I've been with and sometimes my gender expression, it's a bit more fluid than what that I, than what that idea can sometimes mean. Um, And so that's what I think I lose if I, if I just assert that, that gay identity um mm-hmm. i don't want to go on a gay cruise mm-hmm. i think it would be it wouldn't be for me um i think i'd like to do it once i've never done it but I'd i'll like do it once. once let's go i'll <laughs> okay i'll do it once. yeah it never ever it might be fun um yeah i just think that some of my my thoughts and my views and things might not go down that well Talk to me about The Logbooks. This is a podcast that you are the host and producer of uh, that deals with the LGBTQ plus history. Yes. 
How did this podcast and come history, about? of course? Yes. So, um, yes. Yeah, so that's another project that I suppose I referred to earlier when I talked about other work that I do in history. Um, yeah, the logbooks is a um, a podcast of it's a documentary podcast. We've made two seasons so far of about ten episodes each, and I'm we're currently making the third season. And it is a, a history of LGBTQ plus life in Britain since 1974 through the stories of people who have rung, who have called Switchboard, which is a charity helpline for LGBT plus people in the UK. And that charity started in 1974. It wasn't a registered charity then. It was a bunch of people with a phone line in the basement of a bookshop who said, you know what? Lots of people have got questions. It's hard to find out information about uh, gay and lesbian life, as it was known then. And so we'll just make up a phone line and we'll put the number in the back of gay and lesbian newspapers or we'll put it on postcards in bookshops, that kind of thing. And we will endeavour to answer any questions that people have, such as uh, where's the best place to go out to a gay pub on a Tuesday night? in London or um, my partner wants to do this sex, sex thing with me and I don't quite know how to do it can you help <laughs> so they started so volunteers started taking calls in this basement at this phone line in 1974 and the helpline is still going today and it's still helping people every single day it's an amazing charity and those volunteers between 1974 and 2003 hundreds and hundreds of volunteers produced hundreds and hundreds of pages of handwritten notes, which are called the logbooks collectively. And these are notes about the issues that have come up on phone calls to switchboard. And they are also conversations from one shift to the next between volunteers about how to handle certain kinds of calls. And so me and the other two producers, Tash Walker and Shivani Dave, we have access to this amazing archive of of LGBTQ plus life, really, because there are pages and pages of these stories. Anything, any single thing you can imagine, anyone needing to ask, they asked, they called Switchboard and asked, you know, for, for decades. And they, as I said, they still do. And so the podcast is using that archive, bringing that archive out into the light, bearing in mind confidentiality and anonymity. We're very sensitive about that, obviously. We were careful to protect identities of callers. And so in each episode, we read some of these logbook entries that all fall on a particular theme, such as nightlife or sexual health or housing. And Tash and I are the co-hosts and we will reflect on those uh, on those logbook entries. And then the, um, most of the time of an episode is, is given up to stories from interviews that we've collected of volunteers taking those calls but also just of anyone and everyone who has memories and stories of the same things of that same theme that's come up on calls to switchboard so it's really a, a sort of community heritage project really to collect all of these memories with the memories and the handwritten notes being the the heritage and that's the podcast the logbooks well said well said well done <laughs> thanks it's, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a big endeavour to make it because even though each season is only about 10 episodes, they're very heavily researched. You know, we interview uh, more than 50 people. We have all these hundreds and hundreds of pages of logbooks to look through and then pick the, 
the most emblematic l- entries and uh, it's a lot of editing. It's very heavily produced as a podcast. It's like, you know, a documentary series with music coming in and out yeah. and different voices. Yeah. So Deep Sniff, a history yes. of poppers and queer futures. When audiences read your your book, what would you like them to come away with? What's the takeaway that you would like them to come away with? I think the number one takeaway that I'd like people to come away with when they read Deep Sniff is to have been able to, through connecting with the the tiny little drops of my own personal story that I've put in there and the bigger tapestry of uh, of poppers and and what it what poppers has done to um you know within uh, lgbt culture generally uh, through all of those things the the aim really is for the for an, for a reader to come away being able to think about the potential of their own body and that will mean a very different thing to every single person but telling a story of poppers is is really sort of an excuse and a and a kind of more concrete thing you know something to 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 peg these ideas onto and the bigger ideas in the book are really about how we think about our bodies and what they're capable of especially in a sexual way and uh, and a gender expression way and so i think that that's really what i'd like to that's the queer futures you know of the title it's like you know whether it's performers on a stage who do amazing queer things or musicians like Sophie who I talk about in the book or sci-fi writers that I also talk about in the book you know all of these things they're all, they're all performing i think a better a better future for us and all of these creators and artists help us to think about a better a better future and i think that poppers like i said it just kind of like nudges you into a future like a lot of drugs that take away your inhibitions and your your worries for a, for a, for a brief moment um you're sort of nudged into the future and i think that that opens up a space in people i hope it does to to think about um themselves and the potential of their body mm-hmm. well said Thanks. well said well done and well written adam thank smith you. thank you <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's been really, really lovely to chat with you. Thanks for all these questions. Good queer performers push their audiences forward into the future they desire. A good performance is utopia for a moment. In the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, all of these potential utopias were willed away when the police stormed in. Performances interrupted, orgasms foregone, connections broken. The police brought their alternative performance. The police did not just want to stop what was happening. They wanted to make their own utopia for a moment. They pulled on their costumes and they put themselves to work on embodying authority, power, intimidation. As individual officers, people with homes and hobbies, they had been moved by some newspaper stories about a deadly sex craze and by others that spoke of a horrible illness killing men who had sex with each other. They heard the words of politicians who spoke about preserving families and protecting children. As individuals, they may even have wanted no more gay or queer people. As an organised group of individuals, each wanting to belong to something bigger than they were, police officers were grabbed by the idea of cutting the number of queer venues. All we have is the records of their group performance, the way they stopped gay and queer people. They arrested our futures, at least for a night or two. The story of these raids is a story from the past, but it is about how we live in the present. 
creating a future. In every moment we are performing, making choices about the future we want to build for ourselves and others. We can be inspired by other people who are better than us at articulating a future, but it is not some distant, formless thing. How we are living now is always creating a future, whether we like it or not. Whether or not we are trying, we are performing a future. As a genderqueer dancer stretches the limbs they have, they bring us into their utopia for a moment. When I was just a lad, I learned that anal sex was bad. The church said it was a dirty, rotten sin. But then I learned from other guys that no matter what the size, there's a simple trick to help you take that dick. Just a quick snip of puppets helps the penis slide right in. The penis slides right in, you can take it with a grin. Just a quick snip of puppets helps the penis slide right in. In the most delightful way. I met this guy once in a bar who took me outside to his car. He spread my cheeks and tried to ram it in. I screamed, no, it's too big. He said, take it all, you pig. Then he shoved this small brown bottle up my nose. And girl, I gotta tell you something. That that quick sniff of puppers on the penis slide right in. The penis slide right in. Now I can take it with a grin. Just a quick sniff of puppers on the penis slide right in. In the most delightful way. Wow, this stuff is amazing. Yeah, let me try some. I've never done it before. Wow, this is hot. Shit. Hey, Cookie, let's yeah. put something in my ass and see oh, if it works. I just dropped the whole thing on the carpet. Here, bend over. Let me try this chair. Oh my god, I can't even wow. feel anything. Shit, the whole thing fits. Wow, the room is spinning wow. right now. These are great, but you know what? You can't use them if you're taking Viagra. Why? Well, because you'll die. Oh, that's a problem. Yeah. Wow, this stuff is amazing. So this goes out to all the guys who are too concerned with size. It really doesn't matter anymore. As you watch his manhood grow, shove that bottle up your nose. Relax, relax your whole, your whole and slide down on that pole. By the way, just a quick sniff of poppers is from drag duo Cookie and Cachetta from their 1999 EP, All Washed Up. Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures, is available wherever you get your favorite books. And on Google Reads... Deep Sniff has a rating of four out of five stars. To find out more about this author, adamsmith.com. Bill 7. To ban discrimination in employment, government services, and housing, based on a person's sexual orientation, was up for a vote at Queen's Park. Most NDP and Liberal MPPs supported the bill. But without some progressive conservative legislators' backing, a divisive split could rack the province. Four PCs decided to break party ranks to vote with their conscience and support Bill 7. Cabinet Minister and MPP Dennis Timbrell 
did it to show solidarity for his beloved brother, the well-known drag queen, Rusty Ryan. And for me, a gay politician who was not yet out, I had to take a stand. We were known as the Gang of Four. I'm former cabinet minister and MPP Phil Gillies. The date, December 2nd, 1986, when LGBT rights came to Ontario. And just like that, this little gay journey through rainbow country has come to an end. For the full two-hour episode, head over to marktara.com, where everything is hooked up, and hit the archives banner. To keep up to date with the show, follow me on socials at MarkTaraMusic. The podcast is available on all major platforms, including audible.com. Finally, I want to take this time to thank you for taking your time to be with me. Remember, stay well, stay strong, and stay safe. Hi, this is Police Constable Danielle Botno, also known as LGBT Cop, and you're listening to Rainbow Country with Mark Terra. Mm.